Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Alan Parry podcast, where I interview fascinating people and then let you listen in. In this episode, I'm talking with Chris Allen. Now, Chris is a long-standing friend of mine and a really interesting man. So here's his story. He's a working-class lad who went into the hallowed arena of academia. And despite being surrounded by people much more privileged, he had a meteoric rise in his academic career. As you'll hear, he became a professor of sociology at an age which, it's fair to say, is pretty uncommon. And then he walked away from his professorship and, for a time, university life itself. Now, I'm going to let Chris tell his backstory for the first five minutes for context, but the really interesting thing about Chris is how his darkest moments transformed into a new perspective on life itself. Now, it's a really wide range of discussion, and talking to Chris is always deeply enlightening, and I'm sure you'll find it the same. So let's hear Chris tell his story, then we'll come back, take a short break, and then get the interview itself. I, I turned up at University of Cardiff in 1993 and found myself as a working class boy in a very middle class environment and you begin to feel, you get these feelings of inferiority, you know. And um, for a long time I thought I was inferior. I felt I was, I was kind of in, inferior, I was being judged, uh, I wasn't good enough. You know, I've come from a working class background to be in that environment, it's just ridiculous to think that you can I am belong so I was there for five years but over the, after maybe about a year and a half I was kind of thinking these people aren't as smart as I thought they were you know I can hold my own working class people have become invisibilized you know so there was I had a real problem with the literature I had a real problem with the environment I was in I was politicized and I, I thought basically I'm not gonna let you um, monopolise this environment. I'm going to fight for my life. And so I, I basically got my head down and I worked my socks off. I was in work at seven in the morning. I'd leave at seven at night. I burnt the candle at both ends. It was on a lot of pressure. I was kind of going out and drinking a lot at night yeah. and stuff like that and just working ridiculous hours. From my point of view as a working class emerging scholar, I wanted to put... Um, into the literature, working class point of view, you know, um, that I felt was absent. But the other thing was insecurity, you know. It was really yeah. my own insecurity about my belonging in that world because I just always felt insecure. I got to a point where I was producing ridiculous amounts of work, um, publishing a lot and much more than other people, you know, which obviously eventually led to my promotion stuff like that but but it was born of in, insecurity really funny thing was I mean I committed career suicide loads of times and it, it actually did me good I ended up with a, a bloody chair you know yeah. a professor in 2005 I didn't want to do it it just felt ridiculous I thought I'm 33 for god's sake you know I just I didn't even feel comfortable being in the bloody university let alone being a professor I would publish something and then it would come out and that day I said great you know that's out there and then the, the next day will come and think, well, it's like Alex Ferguson. You say you're only as good as your next game. Mm. That's what I felt like. I felt like a fraud. I thought, when am I going to get found out? I gave, I gave up my job in 2011, but, you know, I, there was a number of things. Uh, burned out, probably. Um, I'd risen through the hierarchy. Uh, I'd been embroiled in all that nonsense that passes for, you know, universities these days. 
you know, um, managerialism and all that. I was pulled into that. You know, when I started writing, I, like I said, you know, I wrote for a reason. I was, I, I saw something, I was angry about it, and I wrote about it. And there was a reason for doing it. There was an ethical reason for doing it. And then I, all of a sudden, um, pulled in. And this is our target, and you've got to write this for our target. And that, that my ownership of what I did was taken away. Yeah. My autonomy and my ownership of what I did was that's vital to do to to do anything that's meaningful. You have to have ownership of it. Um, and when that's when that's taken away, I couldn't do it. I I actually got to the point where I, I suppose I was beginning to burn out. But at the same time, I, I got to a point where I didn't want to write anymore because people were telling me what to do. They were saying you've got to write this, and you that's a target. Yeah. And uh, and I'm thinking I don't write because you tell me to. I don't write to order. I write because there's something wrong in the world, and I write because somebody ought to bloody well write about it. Um, and I'm motivated to do that. Yeah. You know. Uh, and when I got to that point, um, I, I just thought I, I'd been involved in a whole um, drama to do with the, you know, the terrace houses being bulldozed in Liverpool. Within the, my field, was, people tried to blacken my name because of it. All these things. I, I just came to the end of the road with it. You know, I just I, I started. I was already someone who felt insecure, but I felt started feeling depressed. So I, I thought, you know, what's the point of it? Um, what's the point in writing a book if it doesn't change anything? What's the point in doing all this stuff if it doesn't change anything? I felt just, like, defeated, you know. That was what happened, and uh, and I gave it up, you know, after that, because, like I say, I was, like my partner said at the time, you know, she could see me, <laughs> um, the spark just went, you know, yeah. and, and it did, it felt like that. So there's Chris Allen with his story there to give you a bit of context and we could have had a podcast just on that. But the really interesting thing is what happens next. So let's return to the conversation between myself and Chris Allen. You know, for various reasons I started thinking about life. I think you get wrapped up in something. You get wrapped up in something and you you actually get so wrapped up in it you forget the bigger questions. And so I started sort of considering the bigger existential questions and there's things that happen like at the same time, you know, depression, bereavements, um, people around me, very young people, really kind of raises issues, doesn't it? Um, being estranged from my, my son because I broke up with my partner and the feelings that invoked. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, meeting somebody else, the circus, um, with... Who'd had you know, difficult you know, health issues as well, and and I just felt that um, it just kind of made me address myself to sort of the bigger existential questions, and I suppose the um, the um, taking the moving from a position of being externally focused and sort of seeing things as a bit of a fight to more inwardly focused. Um, just was born of trying new things out, um, you know, going to, reading new things, trying new things out. Uh, start going to the Quakers, as you know. Um, they're pacifists. Mm. Uh, reading lots of stuff around that. Um, reading stuff about Gandhi. Different literatures, different approaches. You know, um, having counselling as well, understanding myself better, mm. um, 
things like that led me to sort of understand myself and and have a different different approach you know um buddhism I, I, meditation I, I learnt meditation when I was 23 when I f- first started off at the University of Cardiff um, right, so meditation. T- tell me a bit more about them two in particular the Buddhism and meditation because you've been throwing some literature my way I've been hunting yeah. some literature yeah. I, I feel a certain sympathy for it and I have yeah. a certain struggle with it as well Yeah, and I, I've recently started meditating myself I went on a 28 day run yeah um, and in fact, last time we spoke, you asked me, am I, am I a calmer person? Mm. And I said, I didn't know. Mm. But I knew that when I meditate after lunch, I only do 15 minutes, 20, yeah, 15 minutes I do. Um, that it was like a reset during the, during the day. Yeah. But I, I was recording in the studio and so lost time for meditation. So I'm now on a run yeah. of about four or five days where I've not meditated. And I can now answer your question better. Was I a calmer person? I think I was. I think um, internally my body is much more jittery. Mm. I notice when I'm having lunch now, my yeah. leg is kind of jiggling about. And I notice that my sleep is just to pot. Yeah. You know, I find it very difficult to sleep. Yeah. And I think I was finding it easier to sleep because I was meditating and it was calming me down during the day. Mm. And I was taking a calmer person to bed. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean that by me. I wasn't. I wasn't taking yeah. a calm person to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah so, suppose... what's your experience been, and what's your perspective on Buddhism and meditation? Well, I think. I mean, the beginning point of it was because this led me to to explore Buddhism because I've been meditating for twenty three years, you know, and I've been on and off with it. But the beginning of it was the counselling. Uh, I did some counselling, and I think everyone should do it because, like the guy said, um, you know, we all have houses and they all get messy and we tidy them up, and it's the same in your head. There's yeah. things going into your head all the time. Well, I've, I've had it, yeah. Random sort of haphazard way, and they mess your head up, and you need to kind of tidy things up. And so, I, I mean, I'm a kind of advocate. I think everyone should do it, really. I actually found mine not. very funny. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and not everyone says this. I don't think anyone yeah. else says it. But I don't know if you had this experience. That, do you know when you see a, a good comedian yeah. and they make you laugh because it's funny, because yeah. it's true, yeah. but they're talking about very general things? Mm. When you're kind of like with a therapist, they're saying very specific things yeah. about you. Yeah. And I found that hilarious. Like yeah. the therapist would say, um, what I notice in you is that you do this, this, and this, yeah. and I would howl laughing yeah. in the same way as when you're on a comedy night. Yeah. They say, you know, when you go to the airport and this happens, and you howl laughing. Yeah. But yeah. this was like very customized alternative yeah. comedy, yeah. just about my life. Yeah. Did you did you experience that? Or am I just I, weird? Well, I, I mine was mine was a bit more sadder actually because I mean I, I did it for a few months. Really good counselor. And, um, I, was, I was sad at the same time. Yeah. By the way, I was just provoking these explosions yeah, of laughter. Yeah, I did. I did laugh with him, like yeah. Um, but uh, I learned a lot about myself. But but one of the things was um, amongst the many things was that um, in being um, you know trying to do things all the time, I was focused on doing, always writing stuff. Um, when I when I left the university, instead of just writing stuff all the time, I started running. I was running all the time, and then setting goals for running and trying to run marathons in this time and that time and the other. And what I realised through the counselling was that, that um, my sense of worth was sort of located in whether 
I could do these things, you know. And and what I kind of realised, there was a lot of personal background to this, childhood and stuff like that. Always is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. which is kind of too personal. Sure. But um, for here anyway. Uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. You have things talked about in yeah, the past. Yeah. Um, but you had low, you had low self-esteem, clearly, because that's what I talked about before. Um, low self-esteem, and one way of correcting that is to constantly achieve things, you know. And I always felt like that, you know, the fraud. I felt okay on the day the paper came out, maybe for a few days after, but then I started feeling fraudulent again. And so it is another one, and you keep having to do it in order. And every my whole life was like that, you know. I'm I'm kind of. Um, externally focused and with the running it was the same and I had all these identities as an academic and to maintain that identity as an academic and I don't know these identities these identities develop within you people see you as that you feel you begin to feel that and then you've got to maintain it it's a lot of hard work and so I'm kind of doing all this work and having to achieve these things in order to kind of keep this coherent sort of identity narrative about myself together you know, in order to give myself this sense of worth, which I desperately need because I've got low self-esteem. And the same is with the running. When I've packed in the academia, I don't know what, I'll be a runner instead. I'll be a good runner. I can run marathons. I can run marathons in in below four hours. I can run up mountains, you know, all this kind of stuff. And um, it's all constantly proven to myself that I'm all right, really. But the thing is, what I realised is, unless I get that constant validation... I feel, you know, the, the low self-esteem. So I'm constantly searching one way or another for that constant validation. And when I realised that, and I realised I had this core belief that Chris isn't good enough, I um, I eventually kind of I looked into why I had that core belief and realised it was a completely arbitrary belief that had no foundation. And I began to build myself up again, uh, but I began to build myself up from within rather than from without. So I think I actually don't need to be an academic to be a value. I don't need to publish all that stuff to be a value. I don't need to run like that to be a value. I can just kind of be happy in myself, just being me, you know. And so that was the sort of one of the, the core outcomes. It's like with a Charlie with my dad being Charlie's dad. I'm just like, got to be super dad in order to feel worthy as a dad, you know. He supports QPR. I was like, I think I might have said this to you. He supports QPR. So what have I got to do? I live in Liverpool. I'll buy him a season tickets and I'm up and down to QPR. QPR to in London for those who London. don't know, yeah. Yeah, to be, you know, super dad, to be the best dad. I've got, I've got to be the best dad I can. Not really realising that just being me is actually possibly possibly could be good enough for him i think this is really common because as you know i did like a, a year's psychotherapy training yeah and and one of the one of the things that kind of comes up in terms of the school of psychotherapy that i was studying is that idea that people often believe i'm not okay unless this yeah i don't know i have that as well i yeah. think i'm not okay unless and then we have these things that kind of make us okay yeah but when they're not there like when you're not being the academic when mm. you're not being super dad when you're not being the marathon thing in your case yeah then you're just back to being, I'm not okay again. Yeah. So I think for me, it was kind of, um, my thing is like a, a kind of weird mixture of between being a perfectionist and also pleasing mm. other people. Yeah. And it was like that. So if I wasn't doing those kind of things, mm. I would I would instantly feel an implosion of, of not okayness. Yeah. Um, so I, that's what you're saying there is resonating with yeah. me. Yeah. Well, what, how did you actually build yourself up? What tools were you using? to build yourself up to a point where you could recognise that this was just a, a belief system and that you 
could yeah. just be you because just being you sounds when someone says I'm, I'm okay now to just be me hmm. I know what you mean but to get to the point of just being you is is a pretty awesome achievement yeah um, so mainly it was understanding what had gone wrong so it was understanding that I didn't need to be this constantly on the go person you know how, how does that work itself out? So say say you're in a position um, and you feel the pull of mm. being super Chris. Yeah. How do you actually work? At, I mean, I'm, does, the, does the pull still happen yeah, now? Yeah, it does. yeah. It so does, so yeah. what happens in that in that moment? Because I'm sure that, yeah. and I'm asking for my own curiosity mm. as well, but I'm sure people will be interested in this. As it's playing out, you get that pull mm. where I can solve this by being super Chris. Yeah. And how do you just bring it back to being... Simply Chris. It's um, it's it's that Buddhist thing about attachment, isn't it? And I, I'm always asking. I'm, I've kind of read and learned about attachment and some of the Buddhist teachings on emptiness and things like that. And uh, I always look for attachments. Why am I doing this? Why do I feel like this? Why do I think I need to be super Chris in this situation? What's the attachment? Um, and when I think about it a little bit I can part, kind of pull back from it you know, give us some examples of what, what we're attached to you know, for those who've not maybe read Buddhist stuff yeah. yet well I think that um, I might be attached to you're attached to various things you ta- you, you have a I mean Eckhart Tolle talks about having a background story your story which you know, is an identity um, my identity is people, the way people see me as an academic I mean you know I gave up a job and people you know, I go through a process where people still see me as that person, but I want to let let go of it. Mm. But because I'm I'm also worried about what people think of me as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and me too, oh, yeah. my identity. You know, what what am I now? You know, yeah. and so I find myself attached still to the identity and managing my attachment to the identity by talking t- to people about my decision and. What you know, in, in order to kind of make a transition from one to another, but can you really, give us an example of it? Um, just explaining my decisions to people and and who are you know about my why I'm not a professor anymore and why I don't want to be a professor, and I'm worrying about what people think about that. Whether they, you know, it's because I feel the insecurity. I mean, I gave it up because I wanted to, and I sort of at that time for various reasons, both positive. A negative, but feeling probably that people will see the negative, <laughs> maybe reason rather than the bigger picture, and, and being kind of attached really to my own identity and what people think of me in order in order to kind of, I want as a in terms of making myself feel okay, I need that validation from people, so I'm kind of wanting them to think the right thing about me, mm. so I'm managing what they think about me in terms of that decision, when really I need to just kind of think, well, it doesn't really matter, I'll just be me. There's that you know? phrase, isn't it, that what someone else thinks of you is is, is none of your business? Yeah. Because it's what someone else thinks in their head, but it's yeah. it's really difficult to, yeah. to be like that, because I know if someone's thinking ill of me, then yeah. I can shrivel and stuff. Yeah. How do you manage it then? How, what's, how do you manage So you're in that position, and you catch yourself, and you go, hang on. You're just attached to some identity. You're mm. you're attached to some sort of brand that you're trying to project out into the world. Yeah. How do you then disattach in the moment and feel okay and let it go? 
I think it's a, the, both a combination of the long term and the short term, isn't it? The moment, the long term training and the moment. I mean, one of the things Gandhi said was in order to develop his peaceful disposition, it took a lifetime of training and you can never let go. You constantly have to be work on yourself. Mm. And that kind of resonated with me. It's like having a bath, isn't it? If you yeah. smell it, you have a bath, but you have to have another bath tomorrow. Yeah. I went to the Buddhist centre, uh, I go to the Buddhist centre sometimes, and I went one day and this this um, yeah, teacher, for want of a better word, was there. And she said, well, people go to the gym and they work on the bodies all the time, but they don't think they need to work on the minds. When No one ever works on the minds, and that's what meditation is. So I think the first thing is is meditation. It's sort of a bit of reading, a bit of meditation. And, and the difference between the way I did it in the past, the way I do it now, is in the past I used to meditate, kind of transcendental meditation, I had a mantra. And it was to kind of maybe a momentary kind of rising above things, you know, but then you'd sort of finish and then you'd maybe feel calmer, but you'd go back to the world as it was. Mm. Whereas I think Buddhism has a philosophy and you kind of, in meditation, adopt that philosophy. And so you don't go back to the world as it was. You go back to the world with with a different attitude and that they have various concepts of emptiness. And, you know, no self is, a, is another interesting one, which I know we've talked about before. That's one of the things I kind of struggle with. I know. I'm reading something at the moment yeah. and, and finding a little bit of struggle in there as well. It's by a guy named Michael Neal mm. and it's called uh, The Space Within. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and I, I really struggle with that. And I think because my journey has been that I was doing a lot of creative stuff as a youngster, then went into the world of work and became this dead automaton doing kind of jobs. Yeah. And my life story, if you like, is like, I feel like I'm on a journey back to me. So I'm doing loads of creative things again. I'm doing stuff that feels like me. Yeah. Feels like an expression of the self. Yeah. But now I'm reading these books are saying doesn't exist. I'm like, hang yeah, on. I, I just spent 18 years, know. <laughs> you know, in this wilderness coming back to the self. Mm. And now I find it's like that um, Woody Allen joke, isn't it? Um, mm. Where Diane Keaton says yeah. um, that she she wasn't orgasmic. So <laughs> she was going to a psychotherapist mm. um, and she finally had an orgasm. Yeah. And the, the shrink told her it was the wrong kind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it feels yeah. a bit like that scene yeah. in that Woody Allen film. Yeah. Where it's like I've I finally kind of reconnected with myself, and no, now there isn't one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now yeah. the self I've reconnected yeah. with is is some dubious concept. Well, I think it's interesting because with, with no self, I mean, I've le- I've kind of thought about it a lot, read about it, thought about it, meditated on it, and I've found it helpful because I think the the message to me is about the self is tied up with identity. And we have these identities, we have a story, we have these identities, and we have to work, we, we find ourselves working to maintain them, whether we acknowledge it or not, that's what we're doing. So when I'm writing an article, I'm maintaining my academic identity yeah. to myself and to other people. Um, and the same with running or being a dad or all this kind of stuff. And so a lot of the things we're doing, doing, um, are in the service of maintaining the, this sense of self and identity in order... Um, do you but catch I, yourself doing that when you're writing something that you're writing yes. you're writing for that audience and you have to go, Ugh. Yes. I journaled for a while yeah. and it was like a private blog. Yeah. And I really noticed the difference between when you're mm. writing something for other people's eyes and when you can yeah. just kind of go for it. Yeah, it was yeah. like probably the most honest thing I've ever done. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew that nobody was ever going to see it. Yeah, 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 that's it, that's it. And I mean for for me, like it was let the, no, the idea of no self is 
is more about rather than being attached to a sense of self which can be very oppressive mm. when that becomes about maintaining that sense of self and that's of course you know sociologists love all this stuff there's all bloody literature on it self-identity and we're all obsessed with our self-identity and this is what postmodernism is all about <laughs> you know we really work hard at you know what we wear what we buy how we present ourselves yeah. it's, it's just too laborious it's just, just too hard and um and we never feel good unless we've got that validation you know from various sources be mum and dad or um you know other people academics whatever it is you know for charlie things like that and i think what um for me is it's it's no self is not about not existing it's about just being comfortable in your own being and so i'm not saying i won't write anymore um, but what I do is it's like the uh, cocktail book, The Power of Now. Mm. It's trying to sort of transport yourself from a position where you're affected by the past and the future. So what's my story so far and how do I project this into the future and how do I maintain this whole thing? To just actually say, and today I actually want to do this piece of writing because I actually want to do a piece of writing. I yeah. mean, and I'll enjoy that piece of writing. With I'm not attached to any goal because... What what I think now is it, if I feel like doing it today, I'll do it today. I'm not going to force myself to do it tomorrow. And it gets finished when it gets finished. And like no, nobody's going to care less mm. if Chris Allen published this, this this year or next year or not. It doesn't really matter. Um, I'll do it because it feels right at that point in time. And that's being, I think. That's, and actually, that that's a truer sense for me, that I feel the truer sense of being myself doing that. But it just kind of, um, you know, falling into my own being and what, what I want to do. It's like running as well. Well, so, it's, it's like the self that you're... It's like the self that you're trying to disattach from is like the yeah. artificial brand self. It is. And so you're left with the trueness of you who yeah. acts out of intrinsic motivations only. Yeah. It's like use value and exchange value in Marx's terms, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the use value is if you go to, to you, the core of your being and actually what what's useful to you and that's one thing but the exchange value is what does this mean when I'm interacting with other people in the world Yeah. Um, and what am I going to get out of it kind of thing yeah. isn't it well it's yeah it's exactly that do I you, think do you find that difficult to stay in the moment though because I was I read a quote last night and I, I, what did it say it said um, yeah someone said man does not live by bread alone and the retort was well he does if he doesn't have enough bread yeah. You know, so that's that sense like so I'm in this state at the moment yeah. really. I don't really have enough money and I worry yeah. about it. Yeah. Um because if I don't bridge that gap, then you know, my landlord will boot me out and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. So it's very difficult, especially in the kind of society we live in where mm. poverty is greatly punished. I know. Um it's very difficult to disattach from money and I find as well it's very difficult to disattach from other people's disappointments in me. Mm, yeah. Um, so when they're actually stark, I, intellectually mm. I get it and I can do it a lot of the time. Yeah. And I always am happier when I'm doing it. Mm. So I think that's absolutely true. There's a lot of kind of, um, there's a lot of peace in, yeah. in not time traveling backwards and forwards and yeah, just staying I in the present. So. Yeah. But at the same time, when those things are threatened, Mm. And that I might not have money, yeah. and that I might not have love and friendship and <clears throat> all of these things. That's when my attachment to them really increases, and I find myself being pulled out of shape because, yeah. oh shit, I haven't got enough money, so yeah. I need to focus on the money. Forget about the now; the yeah. future's really dangerous. Yeah, so. but I think this comes down to something that you've said in a in 
some of your um, blog posts in it. And it, I think you, you engage. What I've found is you read something and the answer, you know, you expect someone says, read the power of now. I expect all the answers to be there, but they're not. And what if the, they're at, the, the answers are everywhere and you have to pragmatically pull them together in a way which makes sense to you yeah. and your circumstances. And that that's what I think I've kind of learned. And... Um, but how do you manage that? Because you've got you're a you're a father as well. Yeah. You're a, you're a husband now because you've recently been married. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're you're a stepdad. Yeah. And, you know. You, so you've got all these very mm. intimate relationships. Mm. And the thing about intimate relationships is not only are they the most potentially rewarding, mm. but they're also often the most dangerous because we have so much at stake. Yeah. And there is so much vulnerability in there. So when when you're in a situation where you've got these intimate relationships. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you stay in the now? How do you stay as just Chris rather than being automatically bent out of shape and trying to seek someone's approval, even on some sort of subtle level? Right. This is really interesting because it plus we could pick on my son Charlie. That this is a really good example. Um, but we also need to return to the issue of money okay. we raised because I think that's important. Yeah. The um, with Charlie, you know, being super dad. I'm feeling that, you know, unless I just did ridiculous amount in order to kind of justify myself as his dad, which is probably kind of my own, my own guilt because he lives in Oxford and I live in Liverpool. And, you know, it's that kind of thing. I feel being brought up in a mum and dad still together and all that kind of thing. That's, that's my norm. And I, I kind of feel I've got that guilt about that. I've tried to have, I've tried to compensate for it in that way but I think it's taken trust Al I think it's taken trust because what I've had to do is I've had to actually trust that being me is enough I actually had to step back from Charlie and realize I was too in his face I was kind of you know just there all the time I mean as you know I bought a boat moved it to where he lived and was trying to be there all the time and actually I'm it's I've got to back off and trust in the relationship and let it be what it needs to be rather than run it in a way which satisfies my need to be a good dad mm. you know and so I'm at fine I've got this attachment to this notion of what a good dad is and I'm driving the relationship in that way that's what I've learned I've just had to trust in it and actually the relation you know I've got we've got a lovely relationship actually and it, it's kind of it's I think it just benefits from it just by allowing it to be what it is. And I, I think I'm learning that I can trust it. It's it's like there's a maybe there's a risk in, in these things. Um, but you have to trust in, you have to trust in your relationships. So you found that when you distance yourself, when you were attached to outcome, yeah. the relationship was less fulfilling to you both mm. than when you dropped that attachment to outcome. Yeah, I think so, yeah. If I'm brutally honest, um, from the point of view of, you know, a father... And wanting, you know, the best. Yeah, I think I, by by wanting the best, by being attached to what I thought was the best, uh, I, I don't think that worked as well as a, as the relationship we've got now, where I've, I've actually backed off, actually, you know, and I'm just kind of being me and, you know, let the relationship be what it is. And it's just great. It's it's actually great. It's the relationship, you know, so... Well, it's funny you use the term relationship because I was thinking as you were talking then that what happens is that you're actually allowing yourself to relate, aren't you? Because yeah. because yeah. you're being you rather than some construct. Yeah. When you were creating this construct that you thought Charlie would like better, yeah. he was relating to that. Yeah. 
and he wasn't relating directly to the the real you. Yeah, yeah. And now that you drop that yeah. and you're just being you. Yeah. I mean, it has to happen, doesn't it? That the relationship yeah. between the two real versions of of yourselves. Yeah. Is actually going to be more intimate and more natural and more fulfilling. Yeah, and it's not it's not it's not just the real version of me. It's the real version of him. So as a parent. I've got this idea of what's in his best interest. So I think you need to be in a football team, you know, uh, you know, and I'm going to, I'll be down in the, I'm with down to Oxfordshire, you know, we'll get you in a football team. No, that's my assumption. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Uh, Charlie is not, you know, you have these assumptions that children need this, that or the other. And I, I'm learning actually just to let him be as well. And yeah. actually, you know, if he wants to be in a football team, he'll tell me. He doesn't need me to kind of like frog march him off to some football team on a Saturday and say, he wants to play football for you. <laughs> you know, it's like, he can say it himself if he wants to do it. And actually, the funny thing was, is, um, and this is a, another, proves another of your theses that you were talking about earlier. Um, being attached to that outcome, I kind of like talk this thing up. I thought, if I talk it up, he'll, he'll sort of take it on board and we'll, we'll do it and we'll get him in a cricket team and all that. <laughs> and it'll be good for him. Yeah. And actually... He was kind of resisting it. And then I just completely back off. And the next thing you know, he's in the bloody school football team. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so once he's got back. his autonomy, he's, yeah. he goes for it anyway. Exactly. Yeah, we were talking about the, the attachment to money as well as relationships. Um, what, what what your thoughts on that? Because I, like I say, I find that when, when I read the literature, hmm. and I'm not necessarily talking about Buddhism, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm thinking of podcasts hmm. or blogs and of of often very successful people and they talk about losing attachment to money. Yeah. And my first thought is that it's very easy for for someone in their position mm. who are very very successful although maybe this is why they became successful because yeah. they didn't have an attachment to money. But it always feels to me like <clears throat> well of course you can have a disattachment to money because you you're surrounded with the bloody stuff. Yeah. And so yeah. you're you're not worrying where the next the yeah. next paycheck is coming from because mm. your life depends on that. You've got a big stack of it in a, in a locked room somewhere. Yeah. But for the vast majority of people who are just a couple of paychecks away from, you know, mm. from poverty or, yeah. or economic distress or whatever, or might already be in economic distress, yeah. how do we attach from something which in our society is, is a number of things, isn't it? It's like sometimes when I'm struggling... I get I get kind of depressed because I say I get stroppy and I say, you know the the unit the world doesn't even want me to eat. Yeah. <laughs> this is how this is how mm. despised the, yeah. the world is is that's how it views me. Yeah. Because unless the world is throwing some money back for my efforts, yeah. it almost feels as though you've got such a low level of validation for what you do mm. that it doesn't even want you to have shelter or eat it. It it, it just wants you to shuffle off and die <clears> kind of thing. And so money gives you validation, but it also gives you those yeah. um, necessities of life as well. Yeah. So it's difficult, isn't it, to disattach from it? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would be in that category whereby, I think this, this raises a political question, actually, but I'd be in that category. I mean, I earn less than half of what I used to, you know. Um, that's a choice. Um, and I found that um, I have disattached in the way you know, you've talked about <clears throat> to get my life to a point where I don't need hardly anything, you know, and, and that, you know, we're talking about attachment to things that, you know, um, that require money and th- all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I've just gone through the process of detaching. Well, I never, to be honest with you, I never really, you you know, 
it was never really materialistic anyway, so it was quite easy to do. Um, yeah, I went through a little period of being materialistic because that, yeah. that was the answer of the retail therapy. I'd get a gadget yeah. normally or yeah. or something like that, but not for a long time. And yeah. I, I, what I'm really looking for is the space to be able to do the yeah. stuff that I do yeah. and be allowed to carry on being in that playpen. Yeah. Stuff doesn't really interest me at all. Yeah, and, and I think that... This is a really important question because... Um, Although I've made change my life in the way you know we've been talking about, and um, work I do three days a week now as a work-life balance thing. Um, <clears throat> other people aren't able to do that, and I was pondering this. I've been kind of like really personally, I've been sort of troubled by it for a while. We need change. We do need change at that level. I can't, you know, I can't just pretend that it's irrelevant. Parliament, and so I started looking at, um, you know, maybe joining a political party again. It's cut a long story short, join the Green Party. And one of the reasons is, is because I'm very attracted to this idea of universal basic income. You know, the th- one of the key things that holds someone like you back um, is housing costs. Yeah. Now, we have, it's this is my, my field, you know, um, because I, I don't, like I said, I'm not materialistic. I don't really have buy much. I don't really need much. I never have done. But I've but I've got a house. Yeah. If if my if my salary went to anything, it's got me a house. I've got virtually no mortgage. Yeah. And that's what I got out of it. Yeah. I didn't get anything else. I don't drive a car, walk everywhere. Yeah. I never buy clothes. I often go to charity shops. It's that kind of stuff. And just really not that so I can live a low cost life lifestyle. But I've got a house. Yeah. Now if you haven't got a house, you're gonna like my mate talking to you last night, seven hundred pounds. You know, a month before you've even started. Yeah. And these are big political questions. I mean, if you think about it, you drive around Liverpool now, right? And Liverpool was the suburbs of Liverpool were laid out by the state. There were fantastic suburbs, masses of housing built by the state in Liverpool. Very good quality housing, really good quality housing, with a debt that was accumulated by the local authority. That's been paid off. That you know that that could have been, uh, or they've been sold off now. But that debt could be, like if you were an uh, individual homeowner, that debt could be paid off in 25 years to, to, to build all those houses. They were built in the 1920s, if you go to Norris Green. They were built in the 1930s, 40s, if you go to Speak. Now, they could be well paid off, really good quality housing uh, by now. And you could be charging people nothing to live in those houses, other than the management of the houses and the maintenance of those houses, which is, is pretty low. Yeah. And some countries have chosen that route. We've chosen to privatise them and privatise the benefits of, of that um, to people who've bought them. And and it's things like this where I think you've, you know, you've still got to be involved politically. And I'm attracted to the idea of the Green Party for Universal Basic Income, which is a matter of policy. Well, I'm a big supporter of that as well. And yeah. it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the Punished by Rewards book. Yeah. That what, what this showed, you see, is that when we're rewarded for what we do, mm. first of all, we lose our intrinsic love of it. Yeah. We do less work, especially mm. if it's creative work. Yeah. We do it less well. Mm. Um, and we have less love for it. So if you want some sort of way to get low-quality work that everybody resents, mm. and for people to do less of it rather than more of it, yeah. then rewarding people for actually doing that stuff is yeah. is a good way of doing it, really. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if we were just getting paid anyway, yeah. 
and then we were completely autonomous. And when I think back in terms of history, like the big breakthroughs, yeah, it was from people who didn't really, who went, they weren't doing work, yeah, as as we saw it. You know, big scientific breakthroughs, or yeah. the likes of Charles Darwin, for instance, going round, you know, yeah. following his own muse. Mm. So I actually think that there's a huge source mm. of human potential, yeah, which is being lost. Yeah. in just dull day-to-day work that yeah. they wouldn't otherwise choose to do. Yeah. And I often wonder what would happen if that human potential was unleashed yeah. and everyone could follow their kind of passions and curiosities yeah. And, yeah. and how would the world be different if that was the case? I think it'd be a hugely positive change. Yeah, well, th- doesn't that bring us back to what we've been talking about, which is like, where 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 are we in our, you know, in our being and stuff like this and allowing that to, to, to flourish yeah. instead of having to be consumers? Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of Andre Gortz. I kind of use him to teach on my courses and he's been banging on about this since the 1970s. You know, he's saying the left have to, he wrote this book, The Farewell to the Working Class, and he was saying, you know, the left have to get over the idea that there's some kind of cohesive working class there ready to be mobilised and achieve the revolution and, you know, change the world. It's it's not going to happen. It's too fragmented. We need to move beyond that. And he's talking about, he talks about, about post-work society. Uh, he actually has got a book called Reclaiming Work. And what he means is, recla- like, what, exactly what you're talking about, yeah. um, beyond <clears throat> paid work. And the way of doing that is having a universal basic income. And one of the things I liked about what the Green Party was saying was it actually decommodifies things. You know, we can go and work um, because we want to, voluntary, because we've got a basic income. Uh, And imagine all the work that people would do if that was, you know, the caring work, looking after each other. Things that have been commodified like caring work, the, the, you know, you get um, companies running all these like kind of um, biz- businesses that pay people like the minimum wage to look after, you know, look after older people and things like this. And the, the terrible conditions that the people have to work in. And that could be done out of a sense of joy uh, and what, you know, willingness, couldn't yeah. it? All that stuff. Because, I mean, I was reading, I'm reading this book at the moment called Happy City, right? And one of the things it says is, which I agree with, um, and it's in, it's in the data. You look at happiness um, and the Happy City Index, all this kind of thing. As income rises, people get less happy. Oh, yeah. As yeah. relationships flourish, people get more happy. People want relationships. They like relationships. They want to collaborate with each other. It, it's, you know, Peter Kropotkin talks about it. What's human nature? It's to collaborate. It's 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 inherent in our human nature to, to be with each other, to work together, to collaborate. You know, um, Gortz talks about you know the need to get beyond this narrow sort of identity that the left give us as workers. Um, it's well, just, all politicians talk about this, don't they? They yeah. talk about the hard working families as though exactly. we yeah. what we want to do is is never see the people we love, but just toil for like yeah. fourteen hours a day, yeah. and then get some reward for it, and then yeah, you know, maybe attack those people who who don't buy into that. Yeah, and you know that's been debunked by people like Selena Todd, who's done this, um, you know, this book on working class people, working class culture, and this idea of hard working families, and people don't want it at all. They don't want to be identified as hard working families. They want to spend time with people they love, actually, and that's where they find richness in their lives. But but we keep getting put into this category of you know from the right hard working families, from the left you know, um, work, workers and workers versus, you know, whoever, you know. Yeah. And um, and I suppose the, the kind of more, the bigger existential questions around us, you know, 
who are we as human beings and what are we going to do about it? And whether we answer those questions and some of the kind of libertarian socialist arguments like Andre Gortz have tried to push push that agenda, which is actually, you know, um, kind of invited a lot of hostility from the kind of trade unionist side because obviously that's predicated on we have these core identities as workers engaging in that sort of battle with capital. But, um, you know... If we're human beings, we need to discover what makes us human beings. And uh, and by, at the moment, we're just, like you say, through necessity, haven't had to be attached to money and, and all this kind of thing, um, reduced to this narrow identity of a worker. It's not, we're not getting there. Um, having said that, I think what's really, you've put something which I think you got from Rosenberg, which is valuable, is, and I, you know, I work three days at the university. I also work for the WEA and do voluntary work as well. I mean, this is the thing about work, you know... That's the Workers' work. Education Association, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Workers' Education Association. It's like reclaiming work, like what Gord says about reclaiming work. I do what's necessary for the university and then I use the rest of my time to do what I consider to be valuable work. And in an ideal world, I wouldn't work for the university because I just don't like the way they run now. You know, uh, I... I there's some very unsavoury things about them that I don't like going to on this but um, you can be very negative about it you know because uh, let's say you, we both have that attachment to money in the sense that we need so much yeah the necessity um, and I've got that but the way I've looked at it is like through the Rosenberg gaze which this is, is Marshall Rosenberg the yeah. author of Nonviolent Communication yeah rather than saying that um the compulsion thing, which is what you wrote about on your blog, um, you resent it because yeah. you think, I've got to do this, so therefore in, I'll, in my inherent reaction is I'll resent it. I actually go to work personally at the moment and other people are in much worse positions and it's much more difficult to do this. But I say, well, I, I deal, in an ideal world, I wouldn't work here. But I go to, I choose to go to work Mm. A positive language. I choose to go to work because by going by going to work, um, these um, three three days a week, it enables me to have enough money to live, which enables me to do other things, to volunteer my time to other things, um, which has a beneficial effect on people in the world around me. And I try and see it in a positive light, and I think it's seeing the positive outcome of what you're doing you know helps in that respect doesn't it despite the fact that it's very very then again it's very very hard for someone who's got three jobs and who's you know being paid the minimum wage or even less and treated like a piece of shit um to see the positive and what they but do yeah, sometimes I, isn't I, it? I think that's what i think that's why rosenberg says to, to go yeah. with that positive language rather than yeah. i've got to do something to say i choose to because then yeah. at least you you reconnect with the real yeah. reason why you're doing it, yeah. Yeah. and then that allows you to yeah. to decide going forward whether that's something that yeah. you want to continue making that choice for, or whether it's yeah. not. But just going back to the the Buddhist thing and money again, yeah. What advice would you give to someone? Because let's say let's say we we accept the hypothesis, which yeah. is the one I'm clinging to at the yeah. moment, yeah, yeah. but which has been borne out, seen borne out an awful lot of times from yeah. from various people, and you've mentioned it in your relationships already. When you drop the attachment to the outcome, the thing that you actually wanted happens much more easily and more freely. Yeah. So you've explained that in terms of your relationship with your son and everything. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
So if we accept that, it is going to be beneficial no matter what our financial situation to drop that attachment to money because then the, the theory is that money is much more likely to, to flow more freely if we, if we do that. Yeah. So the question is, how do we do that? You know, how do we do that when the bill lands through the door and yeah. you think, well, I know I haven't got that much in my account to cover this bill. Yeah. What, what kind of strategies have you found within your Buddhist practice? I know this is a really hard question, but what strategies have you found that might help someone in that situation to kind of stay focused on the now and not be pulled out of shape by this kind of attachment to money? Um, it's very difficult in that situation, isn't it? Because what it entails is a change in circumstances. If you can't pay a bill, if it's a mortgage or something, then, you know, you're going to be out, out on your ear. Um, and I suppose the, the Buddhist way of dealing with that would be to not attach, over attach yourself to the dwelling is it is it a case of like you mentioned before with your son that mm. you you just kind of I said it was kind of an it was yeah. a it was a, a a threatening thing because you had yeah. such a lot at stake and you said you put it down to trust yeah is it about trusting the process in this as well is it about maybe you know like some I've read I've read some some people like Tim Ferriss who who put a great store on stoicism mm. yeah um, and I think maybe Kevin Kelly does this as well. Where Kevin Kelly says, you know, I, he was really poor. Yeah. And Tim Ferriss as well has said that he likes to practice voluntary poverty sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Because what mm. that gives him is this sense that no matter how badly things can turn out, yeah, he knows he can handle it because yeah. he practices it as a as a ritual every so often. Now, obviously, for it's from a certain amount of privilege in yeah. his in his place now, but nonetheless, if the worst ever happened to him. He's got all of these things where he can go back and say, well, I've been in that bad place and I know I can handle it. Yeah. So is it maybe? I mean, I'm just batting this out. I'm not expecting you to have any answers, Chris. Mm, so don't, yeah. don't worry too much. Yeah. But is maybe part of the answer is not just disattaching to the money, but disattaching to what the money brings to kind of thinking, okay, yeah. I, I will be okay, actually. It yeah. mightn't be exactly as I would like it. It might not yeah. be my preference, but I'll still be okay. Oh, well, there's a good example here now because... This this summer, you know, the like I've just said I think positively about the job I do, you know, and there's lot there are lots of positives about it. I don't like the organisation, but I do like the work. And there was um, talk of that, you know, various things, you know, uncertainties, redundancies. I heard mentioned, and I thought, oh, what the hell happened if I do that? You know, what what happens then? And um, and I, at first I felt grieved by it, you know. And then I thought that I've thought it through and kind of meditated on it and thought it through from the point of view of attachment. I thought, what am I attached to if this happens? And I thought, I began to think I'm attached to, again, you know, we talked about this before, the um, the role I've got within the university. And then I began to disaggregate the wrong thing. What do I do in that role that makes it a role? And then I, I kind of thought, well, if it's the role and the things I'm doing, I can actually do those things outside of that context. I can work for the Workers' Education Association, do adult education. I can do piecework, 
continue to do all those things. So actually losing that job doesn't stop me from doing any of those things. It stops me from having money. So then I went and I said, okay, what what if I can only get a job for 40 hours a week on the minimum wage? And I calculated how much I get a year. And I just worked out how, how, how to live my life within the constraints of that. And actually it worked out all right. And I thought, yeah, my problem was is that um, the reason I was kind of a bit angst about it when it was first mooted was I was attached to something and by disattaching to it I felt better I felt a bit better about it but coming back to the question well that's of, interesting that's it before yeah. you move on yeah um, uh, yeah that's interesting to me because mm. I noticed that I've never gone to the worst place scenario yeah I, well I have actually I often think in my mind I'm going to be homeless or whatever mm. and that's my, yeah but I've never I've never gone I've never really I've never really um I've ne- so that's like the, a real end point yeah. from here. Yeah. But I've never actually taken it step by step. Mm. Okay, so what happens if this? What happens if that? What would happen then? Who mm. might come in and offer me something there? Where yeah. might I yeah. be able to move to? And, mm. and who might pay this? You know, whether that be housing benefits or yeah. you know, I've never actually gone down the the worst case scenario step by step. Yeah. yeah. So I don't actually have a picture in my head mm. other than this big ca- catastrophe. Yeah where I can actually look at it and then make my accommodation yeah. with that yeah with that reality yeah. you know of of what would actually happen yeah you know it might be that if I lost this place I'd I'd be living in my mum and dad's box room for instance yeah um but I've never actually pictured what that would look like yeah and I think maybe there's a strategy in there that you've yeah. happened upon there whereby it's easier to disattach if we can look the bad outcome in the face yeah take it step by step to see what it looks like mm. and then find some accommodation and think, well, yeah. actually, it's not my preference, but I'd still be okay. I'd still be here. Yeah. I'd still be richer than 75% of people on the planet Yeah. If as long as I had shelter and yeah. food in my fridge. There's, there's a very interesting thing here because <clears throat> I think you've got to be very careful that, you know, you'll... By, by saying oh, we can accommodate ourselves to these things you're justifying poverty and justifying a lot of nasty things that happen and I think that can be a problem with Buddhism if you you know it's about accommodation to things however that said there there is I have read an interesting article an interesting article in the Guardian in the last year which was about young people I mean the, the housing crisis one of the things that motivates me is the housing crisis for young people um, and the complete inability to, to secure, I think we all need a safe, secure place to live. You don't have to own it, you just need a safe, yeah. secure place to live, and their inability to secure that, you know. And there was this uh, article in The Guardian which said, actually, don't worry about uh, not being able to get on the housing ladder. It's great, you're not going to be racked with debt. You're free. Yeah. Be creative in the way you live your life. Um, explore the options. Uh, and then you go to America... And you look at some of the experiences that have happened to people there where, you know, repossession, mortgage possession, lost their homes, the tiny house movement sprung up. People basically um, have, you know, the, the accounts that people give that live in these tiny houses and for anybody who's interested, you look it up on the internet, the tiny house movement, and this will give you more detail on it basically these very small houses really well designed like the thing you see on grand designs lots of space saving stuff yeah Yeah. so well designed on wheels to get over planning regulations because you can you can in the us you can build houses below the standardized you know the the format that the legislation um, stipulates um and live in them and people give all these accounts of being free and happy. 
you know, they haven't got that much money. They haven't got the house anymore, but they haven't got the mortgage. They're actually, you know, they've, bought, they've got what with the money they've got left, they've bought uh, these things or built them even. And um, I just like what what comes out of sort of a bad situation is is real human creativity and a new housing movement and people um, are very positive about it then you go to the favelas in brazil where you look at um, you know these these you know can look at them on the side of the the hills and from an objective uh, onlooker's point of view with western eyes you think people shouldn't live like that they look horrific you know, these these places are being built by people with their own hands, mm. including sewage systems and electricity um, and so on and so forth has been put into them. And objectively, we don't think they're good things. But John Turner, uh, you know, is a Western um, guy who's gone and lived in these places for a decade. And he's like, these are the most wonderful places you can live. People are so happy. You know, this, this is not to justify. What's the wonder that he finds in it? The happiness in people, the happen people that feel that um, they have autonomy, some, some semblance of control over their own lives, community. Yeah. If we look at that book, Happy City, where the, the one of the key indicators of happiness was community, the sense of community, collaboration, richness in social relationships, um, a basic necessity um, dealt with, um, things like that. He he was he talks about how people are you know in that situation really happy, and it's very very dangerous to look from the outside and say. Oh, you need to do something about that. I mean, I was at a conference once earlier on in my academic life and somebody comes along and the shanty towns in South Africa and starts kind of all these photographs and saying, oh, isn't it, isn't it bad? Isn't it awful? And yeah, you know, from a Western eyes, it's bad. But what's your solution? And the solution is a Westernized solution. And, and we all know what where they've got us, West, Westernized city building and, you know, um, house building, it, you know. People, people aren't happy living the way we live necessarily. Um, but I said to the person who was doing this presentation, I said, are those photographs in situ or are the people posing? They're in situ. So, so the natural, yeah. I said, well, what I've noticed on all of those photographs is all the people that are on those photographs that I've seen are smiling. So that suggests to me that people are happy. So we need to be very, very careful about throwing the baby prescri- out with the bathwater, yeah, yeah, and prescribing what we think is good for them, and so I think the the the, the, the sort of the message is is that this human beings are capable, or seem to be capable, of creating, being creative, and finding happiness in situations even that objectively from a Western sort of we need a house. Um, with equity sort of point of view it might seem bad but from another point of view if you embrace it, it might actually be alright and maybe the, the Buddhist thing is you know if we can kind of disattach from the things that we think are valuable and, and have a broader world view about things and be prepared to embrace other ways of living we might actually find that there, the op- there are more options for us you know I mean I talked to my stepson about this like live on a boat you know don't get um, enslaved to all this debt and all that. You know what? Do you want to do that for? You can go and live, buy a boat for like ten grand. Well, James Altich, the podcaster I mentioned, he, he says don't buy a house. He said, yeah. as as an investor, you would never, you would never put more than ten to fifteen percent of anything in an investment. Mm, and yeah. people are putting like ninety percent or even more everything. in everything of everything yeah. they own in a house. Yeah. Um, 
But there's one last thing I, I want to do before we, we finish, because it's been a, a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation, but you've just touched upon it there, and I'd forgotten about it. And it's one of my big struggles with the whole Buddhism thing. Yeah. It's the, it's the thing about... And I'm not just talking about wider politics. I'm talking about in one's own life as well. Mm. And, and maybe one's own life is more is more interesting just because we've got more more immediate yeah. power. Yeah, it's that tension between surrender. Yeah, you know, letting go of the attachment, and actually doing some action which changes the world yeah. in your favour. Yeah. How do you how do you manage that? How do you how do you know when to just let something go, and when to do so. so. So there's someone who, independently, I was amazed, um, are both into this uh, philosophy called nonviolent communication. Yeah. That we mentioned Marshall Rosenberg earlier. Yeah. And what he does, he gets us, for those who've not encountered him, you start off by kind of noticing what's happened in the world. So it might be like, Fred has told me to go away. Hmm. So the thing that we, we don't dispute, then we, we notice our own imaginings and interpretations and belief systems around that. Then we get to our feelings, hmm. and then our feelings are created by unmet needs within us. Yeah. So whenever something happens that's un- upsetting, it's because we've got some sort of unmet need. Yeah. And then we try and get that need met. Hmm. So that's one school of thought. Let's hmm. go and get the need met. And then hmm. the Buddhist school of thought seems to be, that's an attachment. Yeah. Don't be fretting about getting it met, because if, if you don't get it met, you're going to be miserable. So instead, let go. Surrender. Hmm. So at what point are we in a state whereby we have an unmet need and we go, all right, well, I'll just keep surrendering. And at what point do you lose any agency over the world around us because we're not trying to get our needs met, we're just kind of letting go? I think that's the thing about pacifism, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I mean, I'm Quaker these days. I've been since two thousand. Since I left work in two thousand and eleven, I'm a pacifist as well. I mean, I was. I've always been anti-war, but I'd much more, you know, um, identify with pacifism as well as anti-war things nowadays. And I, people think of pa- um, pacifists as it's about surrender and passivity, but it's not. It's about being peaceful. It's about creating peace within you and, and around you, and being positive. And so Annie comes in the other day and she's got a can of coke and. Is that that? It's well. There's various ways in dealing with that. And um, did you smack her? <laughs> you could smack her. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about it today because she stopped drinking it, and I, I said, I'm not, "I don't want to tell you what to do, and I'm not going to say don't bring it into the house. It's, you do what you want, you know. But can I just drop this nugget of information into, into your head, and you can just think about it for me?" And she did, and she stopped drinking it. Yeah. You know, and I think with, um, I think with, it's not about accepting things the way they are I think by the very way in which we live our lives so we were talking about you know reducing to three days a week Andre Gortz talks about what we've got to do is expand the autonomous spaces in our lives so the the less we're reliant on paid labour the bigger the autonomous space we have is that's not empty time that's not time to just go and sit down watching the test match on Sky or something you know that's time where we kind of actively be who we're meant to be and in the service of being who we're meant to be on the practice of being who we're meant to be hopefully well John Holloway has written this book called Crack Capitalism and basically saying well the, the sort of left have this idea that we can sort of grab the levers of power and change the world around us and everything will be alright but uh, you can't do that it's never never really happened successfully so 
Um, and it's the idea of smashing smashing capitalism doesn't really work you know it's too big it's 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 so big it's almost defeats us and we give up and so he's saying but just like Andre Gort says occupying those autonomous spaces being who we're meant to be as human beings is actually cracking capitalism it's cracking little cracks because we're refusing to conform to capitalism we're actually doing something different and just being nice to each other just actually being nice to each other helps someone be nice to you if you smile to someone they might not someone walks down the road and they're not going to smile at me i've done this loads of times it's like a woman uh, yesterday i was walking past me and uh, you know she wouldn't have said anything but i um said hello you know well and she's like oh hello and, uh, and she might have thought she'd clicked yeah 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 she was an older woman <laughs> she was about 80 and um <laughs> And I think it's just, it's actually actively behaving in a way which, like Gandhi says, being the change you want to be and mm. to, to create an environment which, which accords with the way you want to be yourself and you're always trying to change yourself, to, you know, to improve yourself. And hopefully that creates an opportunity for other people to do the same and, and that creates a crack in the system because it, it means actually we're not doing what they want us to do. We're actually, rather than being competitive, we're being nice to each other rather than being wary of each other, which is what they want us to be, isn't it? You know, it's like be wary of your next door neighbour. Uh, actually, let's be, let's be, be open and, and nice or, or whatever it is you want to be. And I think that's what passivism is about. Passivism is about not surrendering and being, um, you know... Um, anything like that it's actually saying be proactively peaceful in the way you live your life well, to let, all people around you, you let's know. let's let's say something a bit smaller than yeah. than that let's say let's say for instance i don't know let's say um you you've got a job that you don't like yeah so you've landed in this job and you and you really don't like it mm. and i saw this question of Eckhart Tolle am i pronouncing his name right Eckhart Tolle yeah yeah i yeah. saw this question asked of asked of him Mm. and he said he didn't like his job, so what steps should he make? Mm. And Eckhart Tolle basically told him to surrender more than he was already doing. Mm. And so let's say you are in a in a job you don't like. Yeah. My response would always be, well, I know, I'll try and get, I'll try and get myself in a position where I am enjoying my life rather than yeah. a job where I'm turning up to and I'm feeling yeah. miserable. Yeah. If I, if I identify that I'm just not happy there, mm. whether it be for whatever reason the environment or the the work that I'm doing is not fulfilling I'll go and find work that is fulfilling so mm. in a Rosenberg sense the nonviolent communication I'm mm. identifying that I'm unhappy yeah. I'm realizing that I have a need for um creative fulfillment say yeah. and then I go and make requests of myself and the world mm. in order to satisfy that need mm. so in a sense I'm going out and making a change mm. whereas the the buddhist approach is kind of well, surrender into it a, a bit more. You know, that was Eckhart Tolle. He was saying, you know, be grateful that you've got a boring job because yeah. then that becomes like a landscape that you can meditate on. And yeah. But it feels like one one is very kind of let go of your needs, let go of the attachments because... Mm. And I understand where they're coming from. I see yeah, the logic of it. Yeah. If you, stop, if you stop having an attachment to work which is creative and fulfilling, whether or not you get it, is not going to be a source of upset to you. Hmm. Whereas my natural bent is, well, let's let's change it. Let's let's do something different. Yeah. And and that seems a tension. And how do you how do you manage that in your own life yeah. when a need comes up that is not being met? How do you decide whether to let it go hmm. or to go and chase it? Yeah, it's like um, it's 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 um, 
like working in a university and there's lots of negative things to feel about it and I think a lot of people I know that work in universities are attached to the idea of the university in a particular way but I think for me um, I if you're thinking about mindfulness you know and looking at the activity that you're doing at a particular point in time um, like teaching you know despite all the things going on around me that I dislike um I think mindfulness helps you to just focus on the activity at hand. And my job really is to talk to people about things I'm interested in. Yeah. And actually I get a lot of enjoyment from that and I feel privileged to, to be able to do that. And and so just, you know... Let's say that was taken off you. Let's yeah. say that was taken away from you and they said, listen, yeah. you're just going to do researchy stuff now. Yeah. We've, we've, we're doing a whole division of labour yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, we're having other people are the talkers and you're yeah. the researcher. And you're thinking... No, I don't like this. I, I want to be talking to people. I want to be interacting mm. with students. Mm. What do you do? Do you try and get that need met, or do you? Do yeah, you yeah. Go? I mean, I do like it, but uh, but I don't. <laughs> um, I think there's. Um, it's like with. I mean, just to come in another example before we go on to that. Yeah. Is I worked on a production line in a, when I was a student. In, oh, okay. Um, it was my normally boring, <laughs> and um, again, it's about human beings and how wonderful human beings are. And I think that's the, the sort of you know, the, the, I'm an optimist in that sense, and I just like all day uh, in this job at a massive vat of beans, and it was airline meals coming down the production line, <laughs> and someone had put an egg in it, and I just whack a load of beans in it, and someone else had just, and we, we, the things we did to make it fun, you know, <laughs> and we just had a great time and. Yeah, it's yeah. Maybe that's surrender, and maybe we should have been more practical and said, "This is a shit job. Let's all get out." You know, but we we made the most of it, and it was actually really good fun. It was really fond of that summer. But I think what Urquhart Toll says is a middle way between Buddhism and and the the Rosenberg idea, which Urquhart Toll does talk about surrender. But he also says there's a difference between surrender and practical practical activity. So if you um, resist then you have a mental image in your mind of what it is you don't like and you're consumed by the mental image of what you don't like. So what he's kind of saying is, um, at least I I think what he's saying is, uh, you know, just be mindful about it. Do what we were doing on that production line. Um, Make the most of it, if you like, you know. And But that's not to say that you can't take practical steps to do something else. But if you do do that, at least you're not... becoming consumed in a negative sort of mindset about what you're doing you know so, so it sounds like you're, you're saying that make those steps try and get the need met but yeah. don't let your happiness be dependent on the need getting yeah met. yeah that's right choose to be happy yeah. anyway and and if your need isn't getting met and yeah. you realize it's not going to be met yeah then surrender to the situation as it is yeah so it's it's, it, it's not a complete surrender it, it's it's like saying you know mindfulness moment being in the moment um, the power of now is about, you know, absorbing yourself in in what you're doing at a particular point in time, um, and excluding the, you know, the thinking that would lead you to think that was bad. It's like you were saying before. You know, you can go to work and say, "Oh, I've got to go to work. I hate work." Or you can go to work and say, "Well, I'm going to work because it gives me money, and I'm going to go on holiday with this money, or I'm going to buy a new guitar with this money, and uh, you know, whatever it is, yeah. or I'm paying my rent and I've got a roof over my head, and that's good." Um, it, it's that it's how you approach it, isn't it? And so the him, it's like mindfulness. The power of now would be to sort of you know 
engage in that activity of putting the beans in the thing and talking to people around me without all the additional baggage of this is shit, this isn't it, I hate this job, I hate these people that treat us horrible and they did, they really treated us awful. Um, And like you say, there's that aspect, but there is the other aspect too where you say, okay, what are my needs? That's the Rosenberg. And Erkot does talk about that. There are practical steps you can take. He basically says, you know, the mind... Be a mind watcher. This is really, I found this really useful because your mind, I used to find I was fighting all these battles in my mind, you know? I'd be walking along the street and all these things would be going around my head. There's all this stuff going on at work uh, and battles going on. I'm fighting the battles in my head um, about what the right position is and if they do this, do that and all this kind of stuff. And Ercott also says, you drive you mad. Yeah. You drive you mad doing that, you know. He says, we talk, we think about people with mental illness, people who've got voices in the head. Well, we've all got voices in our head. That's true. You know, and he says, be a mind watcher. He says, the, your mind is not you, you know. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's all these things that are intruding onto you. And I've become a mind watcher. I followed Well, him. Michael Singer says the same thing. He says yeah. that if, if you can observe all these thoughts going on, yeah. then they can't be you. Just like that's right. If, Become an observer. If we can, yeah. if we're looking at this microphone that's in between us at the moment, yeah, then we're not the microphone. We're the thing that looks at the microphone. Yeah, yeah. So in the same way, we're not our, our mind. We're not our thoughts. Yeah, we're the we're the thing which is a deeper seat of consciousness that looks at those thoughts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, I, what I took from him was to be a mind watcher. Uh, and when I see my mind doing that, I, I'm like, hey, you, you know, <laughs> rather than being identified with my mind, yeah. I disidentify with my mind. Yeah. That's not me. And I say, hey, you, you know, stop intruding on me. Don't make me fight all these battles in my head. I don't do that. But what the mind can do is, it, it and Ercot says, save your energy for the practical things. The practical thing to do is you go home and you look at the jobs page and you find a job and you set your mind to the task of saying what makes you suitable for that job. And that's the best thing to do, rather than thinking, them bastards have done this to us at work. And they, and, and all these things I used to do at work, where I was playing all these scenarios around in my head and fighting all these battles and all this kind of thing, which I, I don't do anymore. You know, I'm just comp- trying to sort of detach from them, really. It's funny, I, try, I tried an experiment a while back. Um, I don't know whether the, the originator of this idea is, I think he wrote a book called A Complaint-Free World, Mm. Uh, can't remember the guy's name, but he's a, he's a religious minister actually. Mm. And Tim Ferriss took it up, which is where I heard it yeah. from. And the, and I, I I experimented in this. You might remember I was posting on Facebook. I, I yeah. put a wristband on. Yeah. And the idea is that you you're not allowed to complain. You've got to go like 21 days without yeah. complaining. And if you yeah. do complain, you have to change the the wristband onto another wrist. Yeah. And a complaint is any anything where you've had a whinge yeah. or haven't come up with an immediate practical solution. Yeah. Um, and it's it is quite a practice actually. It's yeah. it's something that because yeah. I well I, maybe I'm typical, maybe I'm not, but I I think I'm a complainer. I I think I'll have a little whinge about yeah. this bloody shit job or whatever. Mm. Yeah. But th- this just puts you in a different mindset. I have yeah. to say, when I was watching Liverpool on the telly yeah. at the back end of the season, that yeah. the 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 wristband was changing from arm to yeah. arm, to arm yeah. every thirty five yeah. seconds. Yeah. 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 <laughs> every yeah. bad pass. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting practice to to, yeah. to get out of that. And it sounds very similar to what uh, yeah. Godsol is advising because what you do then is you focus on what to do about this rather than just in an endless loop of playing ain't it awful. Yeah, and I think I think Rosenberg makes a similar point as well in where he's he says, you know, we tend to um 
engage we're, we're engaging moral judgments as opposed to value judgments um, so we we kind of say and I used to do this a lot a lot you know this, this is all this stuff you learn by trying to kind of find more inner peace what does it? he mean by a value judgment um, a statement of value is what you believe in I see so that. you know um, you say well and I used to say this those bastards the university they're this and they're that you know and um, so that's a moral judgment yeah uh, and it says that's just you, you're kind of bigging up the problem because what's this what's what's the real problem well the real problem is is the situation someone someone has asked me to account for myself this morning for um, 50 pound I spent the other day and, I, and then I've you know I've got a lot of work and I'm like bloody universe micromanagement it's always on my case you know uh, you know managerialist universities and all <laughs> and so I pick a fight in my head with the yeah. you know uh, and, and it might not even be a fight that you actually have yeah yeah. and, and, and I start creating this monster that you know I make moral judgments about you know and sort of whereas whereas um, what I need what I sort of am better off doing is just focus on the, the, the thing in front of me and not begin it up into into anything but but his other point is is you know rather than making negative moral judgments about each other which is what we we do um and saying they're bad because they're this or they're that or the other it's just to say well actually you know i, I value this i value this way of doing things because yeah. i think it leads to you know a nicer outcome for everybody or whatever it is you know yeah. so it's a bit more of a problem. so you kind of say something like i, I noticed that i'm feeling irritated because yeah. i have a need for yeah. autonomy for yeah. instance yeah yeah and that that reconnects you to you rather yeah. than yeah. losing touch with you and pointing out yeah yeah yet. exactly exactly and so i think when, when it comes to you know our thinking processes i think it's a case of being practical, you know, it's not surrender. It's actually kind of like being mindful, not sort of engaging all those big moral judgments, not creating sort of attaching ourselves to these monsters that we create that, that, that we can then sort of dislike and blame everything on, you know. Yeah. Uh, rather than doing that, being mindful. So we were on the production line, we're having a good time. But at the same time, it's not complete surrender. We, we you know, save our energy for the practical task of... Of if if that's not meeting my need, what can I do to meet my need? So when I say to Pauline, I, I, what's the point? For example, if I say to Pauline, you know, bastard university, duh, um, and when I read uh, um, Rosenberg, I was actually th- it made me to think, why would I say that? And it's actually what I should say to her is, you know what? I need a holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm tired. I need a holiday. Yeah. Rather than venting frustration, uh, which actually doesn't create anything other than bad feeling within myself negative feelings within myself yeah um reproduces that idea that the university is bad um and really really it might just be that i'm tired uh, I've, I've gone so far this year and i just need a holiday yeah you need and a I, break. I just need to say to her i need a holiday uh, well i'm just thinking i'm just aware of the time and we've yeah. been chatting for ages and i know we could chat for ages more yeah do you want to leave us? Is there anything that you haven't said so far that you'd like to to close with? I think you know, um, you, you we've been we're both interested in life and what it what it all means. I've actually disidentifying with my work identity has just been so liberating. I just I'm so happy now as a you know a, 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 I realise I look back now and 
I had, I suppose, you know, I had it all really. Professor, you know, good salary, all the rest of it, successful objectively, all that kind of stuff. I was bloody miserable. Yeah, a lot of successful people are really miserable. Yeah, and I'm really happy now. You know, I work part time, I'm doing things I want to do. It's, I've got that autonomy. So a big thanks to Chris Allen for sharing his story and his enlightening and optimistic philosophy of life. If you have any thoughts about the ideas we've shared, I'd love to hear them, so do get in touch. That's at info at alanparry.com. Now, the Alan Parry podcast is now available on iTunes and your favourite podcast player, so here's a request for some help. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. That would really help me out lots. And if you enjoyed today's show in particular, then please share it on social media and tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. You can also visit alanparry.com, spelled of course A-L-U-N, where you'll find all past episodes and all of my many blog posts. And most of all, as ever, thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.